Welcome back to the program. Throughout history, from Caesar through Lincoln, Archduke Ferdinand, Gandhi, and of course the Kennedys and Malcolm X, an assassin's bullet has often changed the world. But what's different when assassination is not a random act of a deranged individual, but an instrument of policy? First, it's the stuff of movies. Think about it. The Manchurian Candidate, Day of the Jackal, Executive Action, Parallax View, to name a few. As well as Syriana, a story based on the life of my guest, CIA operative Robert Baer. Robert Baer is one of the most accomplished agents in the CIA's history. He's also the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including See No Evil. He's currently a national security analyst for CNN and the author of a new book entitled The Perfect Kill, 21 Laws for Assassins. Robert Baer, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Is it dangerous? Is it does is it in some ways subversive to think about assassination as an instrument of policy? Yeah, on the face of it, it sounds subversive, and it's something we don't want to talk about. We hate talking about assassination, but the fact is, uh, is uh, assassination is, is an instrument of foreign policy right now. Drones. You know, you can call them targeted killings, anything you want, but it is assassination. And I think the closer we look at this and look in a mirror, uh, the better off we are. Talk a little bit about that. When you see drone activity now, these quote-unquote, as you say, targeted killings, how do you see that in the perspective of assassination and the kind of precise assassination that you talk about in, in this book? Well, you know, the problem with drones is we, we are, this is what's called the denied area. We can't get into the mountains of Yemen. Yemen. We can't get into Pakistan, the tribal belt. can't put people up there. So we're using uh, drones to take pictures, and we're using telephone intercepts to get these people. So are we getting the right people? Um, you know, like the Haqqani network in Afghanistan is the most lethal, lethal one. That's our main enemy there. But they don't go up on phones. So... And, and it's also, once you're using drones, it's, it's so easy to do. There's no second thoughts about it. There, You don't have time to consider it. There's been nearly 4,000 drone victims. And what have we really gotten out of it? You know, if you look at ISIS today is, you know, Al-Qaeda 2.0, you know, are we any better off? I don't think so. Um, it, it just hasn't been considered enough. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book is to look at modern assassination and, and see what it's gotten us or, or, or why have we wasted lives for nothing. What about the perspective of blowback from assassination? Certainly when we look in the 60s and 70s, both in, in Asia and Vietnam and Latin America, we see an awful lot of instances where there was immediate blowback from an assassination, and in fact it set in motion a chain of events that sometimes lasted years. Well, precisely. I mean, you had the Phoenix program in Vietnam, which was essentially run by the South Vietnamese, and rather than killing our enemies, they were killing theirs. And we got blowback in the sense we lost that war. You know, we withdrew from Vietnam. Um, you've got, you know, even in the Middle East, I think Al-Qaeda is a, is a blowback for other political violence that occurred in the 80s. You know, Bin Laden attributes it to the, the, the shelling of Beirut in 1982. And that's when he decided to pick up jihad. And um, all this, the problem is in the Middle East is so much of this has to do with the civil war between the two major sects, the Shia and the Sunni, that 
you know, if we take sides, even if we are efficiently murdering people, we're still taking sides, and we will get blowback. And I think that ISIS, you know, people in the intelligence community tell me it's just inevitable they're going to have an organized attack in this country. Mm -hmm. One of the things you talk about, one of the rules of assassination, in fact, I think it's rule number one, is you say that the target has to deserve it. Talk a little bit about that, and who makes that determination? Here's the thing about assassination. It's, it isn't going to sound a bit weird, but I'll say it anyhow. It's <laughs> got to be perceived as an act of justice. I think if we had assassinated uh, Hitler in 1944, even the Germans, the Nazis, would have recognized he was a problem, and they would have understood why we did it. Um, I think you have to look at assassination almost in biological terms, where cells in a process called apoptosis will kill a cancerous cell or a surgeon taking him out. So you, the guy you kill has to be a bad guy. It can't be symbolic. It can't be a lashing out. He has to be a real problem. And you know, the whole idea is to save the host by cutting out the cancer. Um, so there has to be a, a certain amount of justice in the act. What is the nexus between looking at the justification for assassination as an instrument of policy and torture as an instrument of policy? Well, I think, well, I don't, you know, the Senate report is clearly not going to get released now since the elections mm -hmm. uh, about the CIA's use of torture. The Senate, in 6,000 pages, has come out and said it didn't lead to any intelligence collection. That was that got Bin Laden, for instance. I I don't think that the, t the torture is morally justified, and it's it's not effective. I've never seen any foreign intelligence service that tortured and got good intelligence, like the Egyptians mm -hmm. torture all the time. Their intelligence was awful always. So. And now assassination, as I describe in the book, you, you have to meet so many precise conditions. It is an act of war, and you have to treat it as such. But to meet all 21 laws, which are, are arbitrary, of course, is, is so rare that you know it's a handful of instances where we're better off and the world is better off for an assassination. So torture never justified assassination very rarely. And when it is justified, even within the context of these 21 rules, these 21 laws of assassination, how do we reconcile it with our own system, which is based upon laws as opposed to, to arbitrary determination? I think that what, what we need to do is, it's, it's a, we need to treat it as an act of war uh, against a, a precise individual or a country and it has to go through the judicial system, the court system. It has to go through Congress uh, and, of course, the President of the United States. And only when it's absolutely everybody's on board that we're at war is it justified. And, you know, you can look at Article 51 of the United Nations. Mm -hmm. it, it's an act of self-defense in that sense. And I think just like war, it's, it's, it's the same thing, just using more efficient force. Of course, one of the things that it requires is a degree of secrecy, which is extremely difficult in the best of circumstances, and even more difficult when something has to involve that many agencies and that many layers in the process. 
Well, as a matter of fact, you know, they, they went to this in 2008 with an assassination, and a so-called gang aide in Congress signed off on this, it's my understanding. And you had the Department of Justice uh, looked at this, and they determined the man they assassinated um, was an enemy combatant, number one, that he was an imminent threat, and number three is he couldn't be arrested. He was living in Syria. So legally, they met those three conditions, um, which, which is the way to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we just had a lot of evidence. He, he killed a lot of Americans, and... And I even go beyond that and, and believe that he was involved in Pan Am 103, the downing of that airliner. Um, I'll get an argument on that, but I, I have no doubt he was a bad guy. But he, he's also the guy I, I model my rules on because he used political violence for his side and got what he wanted. And he used violence very narrowly. And, and um, it, it worked, and that's just a fact. What are the consequences and what should be the concerns when assassination attempts fail? They fail because they show vulnerability on your side and they're, and they're also likely to lead to further violence. Um, you know, even assassinations that work are, are, are Litvinenko, the Russian government assassinated him in London. They fed him polonium. You know, that's clearly isolated Russia is a rogue power. And killing one dissident in London, I don't think the Russians got anything out of it. But but Putin has killed a lot of people. And so is the Iranian regime. These rogue regimes resort to assassination to get rid of dissidents, which does not fall in the 21 rules. Talk a little bit about these 21 rules and how you, how you came to these 21 based on your own personal experience and, and years of looking at this. Well, you know, intellectually, I have to be engaged in something. Uh, I, I think I'd be a terrible novelist, you know, just inventing plots out of nothing. So I actually have to be in it, see it, track people do it and fail to understand the rules. And what I did was I needed, when I sat down and wrote this book, I, I couldn't write about 21 assassinations as an anthology, you know, and, and theorize about them. It was a lot easier to write a narrative. My failed attempt to, to arrest this guy uh, slash assassinate him. And, and, I, and I can show how he operated so he stayed out of our clutches. And He's the one, the, the protagonist of this book, who actually establishes the rules, not me. And, mm-hmm. and it's fairly consistent if you dissect his attacks and his assassinations, what he was doing and why he got away with it, and even why he died, was assassinated himself, how he failed. And he, you know, he'd remarried and settled down in an apartment with nice furniture and everything and made himself an easy target. So... Um, you know, the 21 is arbitrary, but on the other hand, they're all grounded in, in, in fact. What kind of mindset, what kind of moral framework does one need to do this kind of work? I think you're a lot better off if you grow up in, you, 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 in a society where, where violence is fairly routine and... Um, you know, it's a country usually where the civil war is going on. And secondly, where it's a matter of survival. You don't really have time to, 
you know, go out and psychopathically murder people or the rest of it. So anytime anybody who's good at this will come from a country that's where there's a lot of violence, which means in the United States, our violence is mostly domestic, so it doesn't really count. But, you know, know, if you're in Mali right now, for instance, there's probably some very adept murderers there. Um, It's just that we have, in the the 21st century, in the 20th century, we've got so far away from political murder, we don't really understand it. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is to take a look at these societies where political murder is engaged regularly and and watch how they do it. At the end of the day, it's a political science book, even though there's a lot of personal stories. Should there be a goal, just as we think about, you know, eliminating nuclear proliferation, should there be an equal goal of eliminating political murder? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, because the problem with political murder is reciprocity. Mm-hmm. If if we murder the head of ISIS, he's going to say, "Well, we're a state. You know, we we've got land, we've got a government, we have a capital. Why can't we do the same in the United States?" I think that the fascinating thing about the, the the modern times is just the amount of how much we've reduced violence um, in, in the civilized parts of the world, uh, like Europe. United States and even even Russia to a great extent, and even the Iranians have backed off political violence as well. And and we should continue to operate in this. But more than that is that you know, I think we should really reconsider our engagement in the Middle East. We we just don't do well there. You know, no matter how efficient we get, the seals get at, at political murder. And you know, do we want to be in a civil war in Syria or Iraq? Um, I speak Arabic, I speak Persian, been there for years, I pride myself on knowing it, and at the end of the day, I said, you know, it's better if we stay out of these conflicts, because we can't, we can't tell who's right, who's wrong. Mm-hmm. Does this make drone warfare better or worse, because it is more anonymous in some respects, as we talked about earlier? The problem with drones is they're so easy, they're relatively cheap. There's no losses. There's no prisoners. Um, we have no way to judge whether it's effective, a drone strike. And it becomes very easy for the president to say yes. And I think especially for a Democratic president who's, who's accused of being weak on national security, he says, well, I'll show them. I'll you know, do five drone strikes a month or whatever it is. It makes it much too easy, and it's and there's there's no way to judge whether we're, it's helping us win the war or not. Um, and you know they, they, they've moved they've moved to signature strikes where they're you know they guess whether somebody's an enemy or not. And I think at the end of the day, we're we're creating more enemies than we're destroying. It's interesting to think about Bin Laden that once we knew the whereabouts or thought we knew the whereabouts, if we had sent in drones instead of seals. What we needed to do was actually get the DNA from his body, and the only way to do that was was um, to actually get his, you know, capture it or get his body. And I, I think clearly that the SEALs, they are really very good, and especially the team that went in could have taken him alive had they wanted to. Now, no one put on paper that it was a targeted killing, but when the SEALs are moving to a house that size at high speed shooting at anybody who doesn't immediately submit, it's, 
you know, it's effectively a targeted killing. But I, I think we needed, the administration needed him and proof that we've got him. If it had been a drone attack, count on it, the Pakistanis would have lied. So he wasn't in the building, he got away. So we spent the next 50 years looking for bin Laden. As you talk about, one of, the, one of these 21 rules is don't miss. No, I mean, look, look. one of the, this guy that I talk about, I write about, Harsh Radwan, mm-hmm. uh, in 1999, killed General Gerstein, who was the Israeli commander, and he hit him with a shape charge in a, a fast-moving car, and he put the charge right through the back door where the guy was sitting. It, it, it demonstrated to the Israelis that this was a formidable enemy. They didn't miss. Uh, it was no point in fighting this out in Lebanon, and they soon withdrew from Lebanon. Um, you, 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 the, the mastery of precise violence in warfare sends a message to the enemy that maybe this war is not winnable, and they're more likely to go to the table and negotiate. And it also shows a higher rationality on the part of your enemy because you want a rational enemy that you can come to terms with and assume that he'll 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 you know he'll agree to the terms and follow them. Um, and and then we we see this we see this with Iran, for instance, which is the Shia are more logical than the Sunni, who just tend to blow stuff up or knock buildings down. There, there's no negotiating with them. There's nobody to talk to, but. In a country like Iran, which has used political violence against us, once we settled some problems, they, they've stopped. It's interesting when you talk about this idea of a rational enemy, because if we're going to look at assassination, as, as we talked about it at the outset of this conversation, as a legitimate instrument of policy, then rationality has to be a, a clear-cut element to that at some point in time. I think absolutely, you know, the assassin wants to appear irrational, and the enemy that you're going after has to be rational as well. Uh, It's the only way you can reach a peace fairly quickly. But if, you know, you go after ISIS today and you get rid of Baghdadi, and then there's 50 more people spring out of nowhere, more chaotic launch attacks on this country, you're, you're worse off for it. You want some sort of central control with easily, you know, clearly defined goals um, that, that you can negotiate over. Uh, it's, it's, it's the craziness that's so hard to deal with. What role does technology, and I don't mean drones, I mean the technology of assassination, what role does modern technology play in this in terms of weapons, in terms of poison, in terms of information? How has technology changed the business of targeted assassination? Uh, mostly it makes it way too easy. You know, if, if you're using algorithms on emails or telephone calls, you're establishing a guilt, which you really couldn't in a court of law. Um, so it, it's unclear whether the person deserves it or not, you know, because you happen to be on the phone uh, with al-Qaeda you know, and maybe you're just doing some sort of business on the side. That doesn't mean you're guilty of of, of operating with them. And I, I think I think that's the problem. That's why we keep on killing number three in Al Qaeda every year. You know, it's probably the most dangerous job in the world, killing with a drone. But do we really know? It's just, I mean, it, it's like it's like dating. You know, 
you're, you're not an algorithm isn't going to pick your perfect mate. You know, you, you sort of you got to go beat them, know them, understand them, and the rest of it. And I think I think I think it's all seduced by technology. Somehow this is going to work that we can we can run the world off a flat panel screen and a Hellfire missile. Just it, it's proven that it hasn't. We've got something much worse with ISIS. And given how easy it is and how easy it's become, does it make it for the assassin more addictive in a way? I think it makes it addictive. I mean, if if you can sit in Washington in that bubble and call a drone strike anywhere in the world, it's it's way too easy and too remote. I mean, the horror of violence, you actually have to see it. And and, and you have to be there on the battlefield. It's a lot easier to avoid war if you see the results of it face to face. You know, I, I don't understand things that they're completely abstract. And I think the president of the United States, whether it's George W. Bush or Barack Obama, have never seen war, and it's more difficult for them to, to conceive of it. Robert Baer, his book is The Perfect Kill, 21 Laws for Assassins. Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 